Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you today. Tucker Goodrich is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out Tucker's first appearance on episode 78 of Boundless Body Radio. Tucker Goodrich is a technology executive in the financial industry who designs, runs, and debugs complex systems in high-risk environments. Areas of expertise include risk management, systems management, and cybersecurity. After experiencing some personal health crises and realizing that the solutions offered by medical professionals weren't working or addressing causation, he started applying the same approach in research and evaluation of data to his own health issues to determine root causes. His interests have focused on dietary and environmental drivers of chronic disease, including carbohydrate, wheat, and various classes of fat. Specifically, he's attempting to understand and popularize understanding of the mechanisms driving the diet-derived explosion in so-called chronic diseases or diseases of civilization. He's active on Twitter at Tucker Goodrich. He has a blog called Yelling-Stop. He is an expert advisor for the nutrition startup Nutrita and has been a guest on numerous podcasts, including our own. Dr. Goodrich, what an honor it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. It's a pleasure, Casey. And just to add a couple of items to that, I'm also an advisor to Zero Acre Farms. Um, and I've started a podcast, so I have a couple episodes out of that. Okay, I did not know so either at, one of those things. That's at uh, Tucker Goodrich on YouTube, and I've got a link to the podcast format. That's um, awesome. Off YouTube. Wow, I have no idea. We'll, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Tell us about the podcast. Well, the podcast started out, I mean, it's, some, it's something I've been thinking about for as little as, for literally as long as there have been podcasts. You know, my background's in technology, and back in, I think it was 1994, this guy named Dave Weiner said, uh, you know, let's all get together in New York at this place called Katz's Delicatessen. I want to talk about some stuff that I'm doing, and I'm looking to get people's feedback, and me and like four or five other people showed up, and Dave Weiner showed up, and then shortly afterwards, Adam Curry, the MTV DJ and the fellow who's known as the Podfather, showed up to discuss their new idea that they called podcasting. So that was literally like the end of the two-day session that Dave and Adam were doing about when where they invented podcasting. Wow. And I just never really had a good reason to do a podcast up until recently when I did this. I got interviewed by somebody from Vice, a journalist from Vice, uh, the website, and I expected it was going to be kind of a bullshit interview. So I recorded it just in case and it turned out just in case happened. So I released that as episode zero of a podcast that I've started with a co-host, Brian Curley, who's a physician and is the seed oil disrespecter on Twitter. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and are you, are you going to keep your topic to seed oils? Is that basically what you're talking about? Well, that's... I'm, no is the short answer. I've got some other health interests. I've, you know, seed oils is kind of like the thing that I wound up at after looking at a lot of other things. I started taking health seriously with barefoot running. And then, you know, I got, went on a low carb diet and, you know, got discovered I was severely gluten intolerant. So I did a lot of research on gluten intolerance, thinking that that was the cause of my health difficulties. And while it was for some of them, it wasn't for most of them. So, you know, I'll, that's certainly going to be the focus because that's my main message, but I think there's a lot of overlap into a lot of other areas as far as 
bad research practices and, you know, I mean, my favorite example of people are like, oh, well, you have to trust doctors. And my response to that is, okay. So it took medicine 1800 years to figure out what caused celiac disease. Are you really going to (laughs) wait? Right. Um, There's real room for people to do N equals one experimentation because, you know, there's lots of areas where they just make no progress for, you know, a long, long, long period of time. So you kind of have to be responsible and figure it out yourself at the end of the day. You can't just rely on a physician. Wow. Well, that's great, man. We run a sister podcast called the How to Make a Podcast podcast. Really goofy name, but oh, it's kind of fun. Find because, me up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we do host other podcast hosts and we talk about, you know, what the podcasting process is like. And it's more like brass tacks. Like what hardware do you use? What software do you use? Um, always ask the question, like, what, what did you think was really important when you first got started that you no longer do, which is typically like editing or something that is really time consuming. But I always like to ask the question, like, what is your why? What's your motivation? What's your, so, so for you, personally what's your motivation for podcasting uh i just you know i have a message to get out and while i do a lot of writing i mean i've got literally got hundreds and hundreds of blog posts video just seems to reach an audience in the way that blog posts don't um and it really resonates with people so and i think there are a lot of particularly scientists who I read their research and very few other people do or recognize the work that they're doing. And what I'm trying to hope to help them do is popularize their work and make people realize that there's solid science behind this stuff. You know, it's not just me saying it or some other people that there's solid science behind the stuff that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to watching that and we'll definitely make sure we link that in the show notes. In our first episode, we really kind of went in depth with your personal story, which is incredible. And I even feel like that was greatly abbreviated, all the all the turmoil that you went through as far as health goes. Um, and I think, you know the listeners should probably go back and listen to that. If they're not familiar with you or your story, I think suffice it to say that you are a very smart person. You, you taught yourself everything you needed to know about tech and about financial, the the whole financial world. And you also did the same thing on the seed oil side. If there is anything you want to highlight in your story, um, would you like to do so now or should just refer people to the first episode? Yeah, no, just to summarize it. Um, I mean, at one point in my life, I was a really sick person. I was, regularly getting hospitalized. And, you know, that was 12, 14 years ago. And I'm in perfect health nowadays. I actually, you know, I participated in a vaccine trial uh, last year and they called me up again this year to participate in another one. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but, and their criteria was, you know, we're looking for healthy people who are on no drugs and have no chronic diseases. And, you know, I qualify (laughs) (laughs) and it's really hard for them to find anybody who does in this country. Surprise, surprise there, right? (laughs) We're definitely not in the best shape as a country. Well, it it is amazing. I love following you on social media because you're always out doing things in all kinds of places around, you know, especially the Western United States. And you can tell you're really loving life and appreciating life and doing all the things your body can now do. And you you seem to like all the activities that you need to wear a helmet for. (laughs) There's some risk of like falling or breaking a bone or something. Um, 
but but I, I I love the idea of you know where most people just think that aging is just this like downward decline over time. It's like no, you can have you can be very healthy and thrive and and drop dead one day. And I think you're a great example of somebody who's out there and absolutely thriving despite you know all the past you know medical issues that you dealt with and and the terrible advice. Yeah, uh, that's actually one of my Twitter one of the mottos on my Twitter profile. And I have to look it up because um, I want to get this right. It's a Japanese phrase and it's pin pin karori. And what that means is healthy until you drop dead. <laughs> so you want to be active until the last day of your life. I love that. And I think a lot of people don't realize, and I honestly, you know, God rest his soul. I learned this from my father and from a friend of mine who were about the same age. And my father just kind of like accepted aging and settled into this role as an old guy. And my friend never did and was active. I used to ride motorcycles with him. You know, he was an active skier. And I looked at these two people and I was like, you know what? You really have a choice, right? You make a choice. You make a choice if you're going to, you know, how you're going to age. And every one of us has to make that choice. Now, granted, there's a lot of diet that contributes to that, right? And can make it harder for you, which is why what we're talking about here is so important. But, you know, there's also a huge amount of choice. Like, are you going to pursue the sort of activities that are going to extend your life? Or are you just going to sit in what a what a podcaster I listed, used to listen to called the couch of doom and <laughs> wait for the inevitable? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I mean... My thoughts on the couch of doom, I standing, I have a standing desk, right? I never sit when I'm working. I do every podcast I do standing up and it's usually at the, in the middle or at the end of the day, standing up. Um, I virtually never sit. So I get up, I go for a run. I eat when I'm alone. I eat standing up, you know, when I'm having dinner with my wife, we sit down at the table and then I get back up and I go back to work standing up. So, you know, I can move. Side to side, because I'm <laughs> at my standing desk. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I think if more people understood what life could be like, um, being really healthy and being able to do all the things you love, all of that fits in what your actual abilities are and what your health allows. It's just such a blessing and such a gift. And so I think it's wonderful that you're yeah. able to reverse all of that and you get to go out and um, you know really love and appreciate life and appreciate the outdoors. Um, so, so this was perfect timing today. I get this all the time. This was literally 30 minutes before getting on this call with you to have this conversation. And somebody I've been working with for several years sends me an article from the University of Utah and the wonderful health, um, you know, facility that they have here, a medical facility. And it's all about good fats and bad fats. And he, he sends this to me. He's like, I'm so confused by all this. You said this one thing and this thing from this giant hospital says this other thing. And so I'm just going to read the bad fats. So these are the ones you should avoid. Saturated fats are all, all often solid at room temperature and are ones that increase the risk of disease, of heart disease and high cholesterol. These include animal-based products like butter and cream, fatty cuts of meat and chicken, processed meats. They also include coconut oil, palm oil, and certain margarines eat these sparingly. Really bad fats are trans fats, the good fats. Unsaturated fats can reduce inflammation, stabilize heart rhythms, and lower cholesterol when they replace saturated fats in the diet. They include omega-3 fatty acids found in avocados and seafood, <laughs> olive, canola, safflower, and soybean oils, and nuts. And they list a bunch of nuts. And so the, the whole article is replace the, the quote-unquote bad fats with the quote-unquote good fats. What do you, what's going through your brain when you think, when you hear that? 
I'm thinking, gee, they don't know what the science says. <laughs> um, sorry, guys. Um, so here's so the classic study, epidemiological study on fats was started by Ansel Keys. It's called the seven seven countries study. And after 25 years, they wrote a summary article. The original Ansel Keys didn't sign this. Um, and what they said was, they say the most important thing are beneficial effects, both on the oxidizability of LDL particles and on thrombogenesis. They were saying that LDL per se wasn't necessarily that important. So this was written in 1995, which was, you know, probably six years after we figured out what ox LDL is and that ox LDL is what initiates cardiovascular disease. Um, and you can go find papers from as recently as 2020 or going all the way back to the original papers in the eighties. And so what is ox LDL? Ox LDL is fat with oxidized omega-6 fats in it. That's the definition, right? These oxidized fats are toxic. They cause all the, they cause harmless normal LDL. And it's been repeatedly shown that normal LDL is harmless to become a toxic thing in your body that initiates cardiovascular disease. So what I would turn around and ask the authors of that article is why are you ignoring the science? Mm. Yeah. I mean, to see, right? and I would start to wonder if they have some motivation that is causing them to ignore decades of research into what is actually initiating and causing cardiovascular disease to progress. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I just to, to, to see that in the, in the grouping of the good fats, you see, you know, olive oil, but you also see canola, soybean oil, safflower oil that that blows my mind. I can't even. <laughs> well, they're what they're doing is. Okay. What they're doing is they're basically trying to mislead you. Okay. The original argument from Ansel Keys and company, including the American Heart Association, was that um, polyunsaturated fats, by which they meant fats coming from vegetable oils, were beneficial to you. And they tried to do a number of tests of that, and they all failed. And in you know, all the major ones, heart disease actually went up even though LDL, which they were blaming for it, went down. And we now know that's because LDL per se isn't the problem. It's the oxidized omega-6 fats and oxidized LDL that are the problem. Um, so then this researcher, uh, this doctor uh, in France, um, Michel Delorgeral, did this Lyon diet heart study where he showed what he called a Mediterranean diet with much lower levels of omega-6 fats and higher levels of omega-3 fats beat the daylights out of the any other diet that's ever been tried for heart disease, right? 70% wow. reduction in heart disease. Now, to put that in perspective, statins are sold by the billions of dollars because they give you a 20% reduction in heart disease, allegedly, right? So this was a huge win. And, you know, the AHA wrote a, you know, he did a paper in 94 and 99, and then the AHA did wrote a scientific advisory, I think the following year, um, where they kind of changed their tune. But they never mentioned Delore Girl's 
original thesis, which is, you know, lowering linoleic acid, the omega-6 fat in vegetable oils is going to be beneficial, right? They just kind of ignored that. And they said, oh, well, we just need to add some more omega-3 fats. And there have been some studies that show that, you know, adding a little bit of omega-3 fat in is beneficial, but they've never turned around and corrected their initial advice, right? And as researchers who look into this have pointed out, you know, Americans aren't eating a lot of omega-3 fats. What Americans are eating are a lot of omega-6 fats and almost no omega-3 fats. Yeah. So we're, we as a country are still following outdated advice that even when you press the experts, they will say you shouldn't be doing it, but that's what we're actually doing. And that's because, you know, the dietary guidelines are based on old debunked science and they just haven't updated it. So dumb. I, yeah, it blows my mind. I, I I would love to talk about how these things are so harmful in the body and in different ways and what, what things can manifest inside the body, because I think that's so interesting and you know more of that, about that than anybody else. But I would like to go back a little bit and talk maybe what even is vegetable oil? I think most people on the street hear vegetable oil. It definitely comes from vegetables. You and I talked a little bit about that last time. Uh, you know, how did these things come about? Uh, we also call them seed oils. What, what seeds are we taking them from? How did this kind of whole mess get started? Is this something we've been eating for a very long time, or is this like more recent? Let, let's kind of address some of those things. Well, yeah, as great, great question. Um, so what is a vegetable oil? A vegetable oil is a fat produced from a vegetable as opposed to an animal fat like beef tallow or lard or butter. So that would be olive oil, avocado oil, you know, anything that has a seed attached to it, cotton seeds, soybean is a seed, cedar, you know, uh, corn is a seed, obviously. Um, so it's any fat made from a vegetable and they're not bad. And the reason we like to distinguish seed oils from vegetable oils is that vegetable oils per se aren't a bad thing. What really matters is the type of fats that they are made from, right? Polyunsaturated fats, fats come in three basic varieties, saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. And the difference between the three is a saturated fat has a full complement of hydrogen atoms. It's saturated with hydrogen, right? A monounsaturated is missing one hydrogen atom. So it's got one double bond because there's a gap. And then a polyunsaturated has two or more double bonds. So there are two or more missing hydrogen atoms. Um, the difference between the three fats is that the more missing hydrogen atoms you have, the more susceptible the fat is to oxidation, right? So if you take a bar of soap, right, it's rock hard. That's because it's made mostly from saturated fats. If you look at a bottle of grapeseed oil, it's liquid, and that's because it's polyunsaturated and the, you know, it causes the fats to be liquid at a higher temperature. Now, what that also means is that the more missing hydrogen atoms you have, the more opportunities there are for oxygen to bind to the fat and break it apart, right? And that can take a harmless, a fat that's harmless on its own, like for instance, linoleic acid, the fat that we'll be talking about here, the omega-6 fat that's mostly found in seed oils, on its own is harmless, right? Which is like saying, <laughs> my favorite analogy, it's like, you know, if you have a cigarette and a pack of cigarettes sitting in your pocket, it's harmless, 
right? Until it gets oxidized and you suck it into your lungs yeah. and it becomes harmful. That's right. The linoleic acid unoxidized is harmless. The problem is the things that it breaks down into are exceedingly harmful, highly toxic chemicals like acrolane, uh, hydroxynononol and malondialdehyde, as well as, I mean, there are literally hundreds of different chemicals that it breaks down, down into. Wow. These acrolane is the what's thought to be the primary toxin in cigarette smoke. It can also be produced from uh, seed oils breaking down in your body um, as well as in cooking. And there's, you know, a whole raft of other chemicals that we'll kind of touch on as we go through this. I like to talk about uh, what's known as 4-hydroxynonanol, 4-HNE or HNE the most, because the only thing that that is made from is uh, linoleic acid and other omega-6 fats. So it's a really good marker. Since omega-6 fats only come from the diet, right? This particular toxin is a really good marker for your diet leading to disease. Mm, interesting. Uh, somebody told me this. I want to just breeze this past you to make sure I'm right on this. I was told that TNT um, has six uh, double bonds, I believe, um, as a molecule. TNT? You mean what they make dynamite? From? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whatever chemical is in okay. there. As, as just to, to, to give the listener, like, this is what happens when things react with oxygen. Like, yeah, a stick of dynamite is not bad until you light it and then, you know, bad things happen. And that's that's kind of the sort of thing that you're explaining on a lesser level. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, that's actually a great analogy. So there's a couple of videos online that are quite hilarious where, you know, we've all heard of flaxseed oil, which is supposed, which is pitched as being a healthy polyunsaturated fat. Um, flaxseed soil is flaxseed oil is primarily omega three fats, what they call a short chain omega three fat, and some linoleic acid and you know, it's also known as linseed oil. And when I was a kid growing up, this was notable because dads would tell their kids, don't, if, you know, if you're working on a furniture project and you're using linseed oil, you would use a rag to rub it into the furniture, into the wood. And then you had to be very careful what you did with the rag because, so there are videos on YouTube where you can see they put a soak a, a rag in linseed oil and put it in the sun and it bursts into flames in a little while. Right. Wow. Literally. Wow. Right. And apparently back when they were um, beginning to produce a lot of waste cotton seed because of, you know, cotton mills making cotton for clothes and other things, this was a big problem because these piles of cotton seeds saturated with polyunsaturated fats would occasionally just burst into flames as they were sitting in the sun. Wow. That's how unstable these fats are. Um, and yeah, comparing it to dynamite, dynamite, obviously you get more bang for your buck, but it's kind of the <laughs> <Literally>. same process. <laughs> Literally. Wow. Well, yeah. And, and we talk about cotton seeds and, and we talk about the first of these kind of oils that made its way into our diet, which is Crisco. Crystallized cotton seed is what that stood for back in the day that Procter & Gamble made. Is that correct? That's correct. But that came around in like 1911. Uh, it's when Crisco was introduced. Um, by then, everybody in the United States was already consuming a lot of cottonseed oil. Hmm. And the reason for that was that the number one fat in the United States at that time was lard. Um, cottonseed oil, cottonseed oil straight from the cottonseed is pretty toxic. 
it's actually been used, you're going to love this. It's actually been used as a um, male birth control. Um, the problem is because it contains this fat called gossypol, which is highly toxic. The problem with using cottonseed as a male birth control is that it's irreversible. It causes permanent sterility. Wow. <laughs> wow. You can't make this stuff up. Um, no, you can't make this stuff up. So they would feed cottonseed to cattle, you know, who are because they have a ruminant stomach and, you know, the bacteria kind of pre in their stomach kind of pre-process these fats. They're kind of protected from it. But from animals with a single stomach, like humans, chickens or pigs, it's a pretty nasty toxin Wow! in cottonseed. So they were able to figure out how to kind of remove most of it and, that is what allowed people to start using cottonseed as food. And originally, you know, this, so what came to light in the 1800s, the armor um, company, I can't remember the whole name, but anyway, they were one of the, they decided they wanted to corner the, the lard market, right? Which was they wanted to buy up all the lard production and control the market, which was legal back then. Um, which is why we have antitrust now. <laughs> and so he, they, they did this, Mr. Armour, I can't remember his first name. Um, but in the process of doing this, he realized that there wasn't enough lard production in the country to announce, to account for the amount of lard that was being sold. And what he realized was that about 20% of the lard, lard was actually cottonseed oil. It was illegally adulterated lard. Um, so, you know, shortly thereafter, they had congressional hearings. This is one of the things that ultimately led to the creation of the FDA. A lot of countries banned the import of American cottonseed oil because they realized that it could be used, you know, amusingly Italy banned it because it was such a big thing, um, to adult use cottonseed oil to adulterate olive oil in Italy, something that's still going on to this day. Yeah. So, you know, so basically, you know, a fifth of the leading animal fat in the country was actually cottonseed oil wow. by the time it, this came to light. So we were, you know, and arguably Crisco's, you know, Crisco ha of course has an issue with trans fats, um, but Crisco is mostly saturated fat. So in some animal experiments, animals do better with Crisco than they do with straight vegetable oils wow. because it has fewer of the polyunsaturated fats. Interesting. Wow. Super interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of all of that history and I wasn't aware that they were cutting lard with cottonseed. That's, uh, sounds disgusting. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so when this stuff gets inside the body, um, I think the number one thing that, that most people think about would be along the lines of oxidation, along the lines of inflammation. So first of all, can you talk about what inflammation is? Is it good or is it bad? And then, um, talk about like how we can deal with that inside the body. Yeah. Inflammation. Um, Inflammation is always good. Okay. Always good. Inflammation is your body's first attempt to heal itself, right? Healing, I would argue, is never bad. There are, and I'm just going to skip any caveats there. Healing's never bad, right? The problem that we have is when you are constantly getting damaged. So you were in a constant state of inflammation. Um, then essentially your body's never able to 
heal itself from the damage that's occurring, right? So what can cause inflammation? Smoking is a great way to cause inflammation, right? When you smoke, you ingest toxins into your lungs that causes damage. Your body has an inflammatory reaction trying to, um, trying to heal the damage that you're doing to yourself. Um, what was the other part of your question? The other half of that question, just like how we deal with it in the body. I mean, that, that was a really good explanation. Right. I'm looking like at my forum where I, I scraped a bush the other day and it started bleeding and you know, it's, it's raised and a little bit, you know, red around the edges. And I know like in a few days, it'll right. be just fine. That's also inflammation, correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anytime your body gets hot and red and swells up, that's inflammation. Right. And it's always a good thing. Um, it's can become so it, and it becomes, okay. So what controls inflammation? Your body makes these chemicals, um, from mostly polyunsaturated fats. Um, and there are pro-inflammatory fats that can be made from omega-6 and there are anti-inflammatory fats, which can also be made from, from omega-6 fats, but are also made from omega-3 fats. Um, and what seems to make it a problem is when you have an imbalance between the pro-inflammation and the inflammation resolving mediators in your body, right? So you get into this permanent state of of an inflammatory reaction to damage and your body can't repair the damage because you're continuously causing it. You know, it's the difference between having a single cigarette and being a smoker. If you have a single cigarette. <laughs> Remember the first time I smoked a cigarette, I was trying to smuggle a couple cartons of cigarettes into the Soviet Union to use as currency. <laughs> and they said, well, if you're not actually a smoker, you know, they're going to ask you to smoke a cigarette to prove that you're a smoker. And I was like, oh, so I had to smoke a cigarette standing in line at customs in the Moscow <laughs> airport, you know, which made me turn green. Uh, <laughs> you know, but if you only do it once, it's not that big of a deal. It's gross. Maybe you throw up and, you know, your body heals the damage and you move on. Yeah. Um, it's right. It's when you're constantly doing it that you start causing a problem. So, yeah. but, so let's talk about, um, so lots of things can cause inflammation, right. And trigger your body to create these inflammatory markers, right? So for instance, when you get an infection, um, your body looks at these markers on the, whatever it is that's infecting your body, whether they're viruses or bacteria, you know, and your body recognizes it's called, uh, PAMPs or DAMPs, pathogen associated molecular pattern or damage associated molecular pattern. And in some cases they're the same thing, right? It's this mecha, it's this pattern, a molecular pattern, a molecule basically, that your body recognizes could either be a sign of infection or it could be a sign of damage to your cells. And your body reacts to that by starting an inflammatory reaction, right? The first stage of the healing process. Part of that process is trying to kill the pathogen. It's also killing damaged cells and then discarding of the pathogen or the damaged cells, right? And we have, you know, take everybody back to like high school biology. We have these white blood cells and they do two things. Basically, they kill pathogens or they kill bad cells 
And then they eat them and take them away to be disposed of, which basically means digested, right? So now what's really interesting about our little discussion here is, you know, I mentioned oxidized LDL. Oxidized LDL contains a molecular pattern that is identical to the molecular pattern in, I think it's staph, the staph bacteria, which is one of the most common bacterias. And it turns out that we have a genetic capability to defend ourselves, to identify staph because it's so common, right? So every one of us has this gene that allows us to create an antibody against the staph. And the antibodies, the same antibody that reacts to oxidized LDL, right? So what is this? So you may have heard people say that cardiovascular disease is an inflammatory disease, and that's why, right? Your body, <laughs> this sounds a little crazy when you say it, but essentially your body is launching an autoimmune reaction against components of your own blood, which have become toxic, right? OxLDL is toxic. It contains two to at least two toxins, HNE, which I mentioned, and malondialdehyde, which are, oh, what do they do? They kill cells. They cause genetic damage. You know, they're quite, I mean, reading, going to Wikipedia and reading the Wikipedia pages on those two chemicals is quite enlightening. Um, they are rather nasty toxins, and they are toxins that occur naturally in our bodies and that your body recognizes them and launches this inflammatory reaction. So what seems to be the problem is how do you make OxLDL in your body? Well, they've done a lot of experiments in animals and humans. And let's talk about first how to protect yourself from oxidized LDL. You lower the amount of omega-6 polyunsaturated fats in your diet. And then your LDL is mainly comprised of saturated fats, which aren't subject to oxidation. They do make your LDL level go up. But even when they do that, they're not the toxin, right? what the tox and the polyunsaturated fat or the monounsaturated fat, like oleic acid, the fat that's found in olive oil also isn't subject to oxidation. And even if it does oxidize, what it oxidizes to isn't particularly tox toxic. So when they do these experiments, you know, either way, you want to lower oxidized LDL, you lower the amount of omega-6 fats in your diet, you want to increase it, you increase the amount of omega-6 fats in your diet. And it makes your blood more susceptible to oxidation, to turning into this toxic substance that promotes an autoimmune reaction in your body, right? Both against your blood and as it damages cells in your body, it also um, causes an autoimmune reaction against your cells. And that's one of the things that causes atherosclerosis, right? Where you were essentially attacking your blood vessels, right? Your body is attacking, your immune system is attacking your blood vessels. And that's one of the things that causes these plaques, right? So now we're all familiar with this process because almost everybody has gotten poison ivy, right? Poison ivy, you know, the immune, the autoimmune reaction you have to poison ivy is caused by a oil called erosiol. And just like in your blood, the um, erosiol is effective as an antigen to the extent that it contains more polyunsaturated fats because those are the fats that break down 
and cause this autoimmune reaction, wow. right? So what Erosiol does when you get poison ivy on your skin, you get this oil, which oxidizes, alters your skin and makes your skin look like a foreign invader. The exact same process is happening in these chronic diseases inside your body. Wow. Inside the body. Yeah. And, you know, we live here um, in the shadows of the Wasatch Mountains, just right outside of Salt Lake City, which is also the multi-level marketing capital of the world. And you and I can talk talk um, offline if you want to be on my downline to sell some whatever Jamoni juice or whatever I come up with. Um, but, but the argument that a lot of people have is like, why don't we just take more antioxidants? We could, you know, take whatever plant compounds that comes from some berry in the jungle of, you know, Brazil or something. And it's going to be this wonderful antioxidant thing. I can continue eating my you know crappy diet with all these, you know, omega-6 oils in them. And I just need to increase my antioxidant consumption. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that sounds very rational. Um, and they've done a lot of experiments in humans and they all fail. And the only evidence I've ever seen for antioxidants is that they are harmful when you take them. Right. And why would that be? So let's look at, you know, one of the most common antioxidants that's discussed in the literature is vitamin E, uh, right. And one of the first studies that they did was looking at physicians. And what they discovered was that physicians with higher levels of tocopherols in their bloodstream also had higher levels of heart disease. So then they tried some, uh, they tried a number of different uh, random, randomly controlled trials where they've added uh, antioxidants. And long story short, it turns out that while antioxidants often help prevent oxidation. In some circumstances, they actually promote oxidation. So it turns out that vitamin E promotes the oxidation of polyunsaturated fats in the blood. It doesn't retard it. So it makes the process worse. The same thing can be said for um, vitamin C. It has pro and antioxidant capacities. In fact, the standard way to induce oxidative stress, which is a term we should probably explain in animal models is iron plus vitamin C um, because it acts with iron as a pro-oxidant and the mechanism is it causes um, what they call lipid peroxidation, which is another one of these code words that almost only always means the oxidation of omega-6 fats. And as we've already discussed, that causes this generation of toxins in the body. So there's another factor there too, though. Um, Some of the oxidative damage actually takes place inside your mitochondria. And a lot of these antioxidant molecules are in fact too, literally physically too big to get inside the mitochondria where they are needed. So they've invented some synthetic um, charged antioxidants that are because of their charge are affected to the charged interior of the mitochondria. Those do protect against this sort of oxidative damage. And they're doing it because they're getting to a place where your body's own antioxidants can't really get. Wow. Right. So it's kind of as a proof of concept to what kind of antioxidants do we actually need to protect from this damage? They don't protect from everything, but they do protect from some stuff. Wow. 
Wow, so interesting. So as far as physical manifestations, if somebody is wondering whether you know vegetable oils are causing them damage or harm in their day-to-day life, what physical manifestations might they expect to see? And we can maybe go from like the most obvious to some of the more subtle ways that people maybe would not be expecting. Well, if you're overweight, <laughs> <laughs> if you're susceptible to sunburn, um, if you have, I would argue almost, I mean, there are two, there are three known causes of autoimmune diseases, poison ivy, which nobody eats, <laughs> wheat and seed, seed oils, right? So if you have an autoimmune disease, what I always, and that includes allergies, um, what I always tell people, you know, you got to eliminate the two of those three things that you're probably eating, which is wheat and vegetable oils. Um, if you have, you know, and that, if you have cardiovascular disease, if you have any sort of what they call a chronic non-communicable disease, like, uh, type two diabetes, arguably type one diabetes, although there's good evidence that that's caused by wheat consumption, you know, that's an autoimmune disease, type one diabetes. Um, if you have, uh, joint problems, if you have, um, arthritis, if you have, you know, pick one, I mean, we can, you know, all the chronic diseases that are plaguing most Americans tie into these mechanisms. Yeah. In some way or another. Interesting. And I think, I think it's important to maybe mechanistically talk about the obesity and I I'll tie this in together with like type two diabetes. I, I want to be the guy that says, okay, it's insulin that's driving all of these things. And so it's carbohydrate, it's sugar and carbohydrate causes diabetes and insulin or and insulin resistance, excuse me, which is causing obesity. And it, it, it's clean. It like makes a lot of sense. And for me to explain how vegetable oils are, are causing that it's, it's a lot harder for me. And I think you'd be a, a great person to kind of talk about what is the mechanism that's causing people to gain weight just from the seed oils, not necessarily from carbohydrates and sugar, which also contribute obviously, but yeah, well, I mean, it's important to note that, you know, if you have type 2 diabetes, you are suffering from an inability to process carbohydrates. And the most effective way to deal with that inability is to stop eating them. <laughs> right. Sounds like a good now idea. It's to an me. Open right. Well, I mean, it seems obvious, but, you know, it's been news to the American Diabetes Association for the last hundred years. You know, they finally came around when Verda Health was able to demonstrate. Hey, look, it works just like you guys knew a hundred years ago. Yep. And then you had a lobotomy and forgot. Yep. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, there's, it's, that's definitely a valid treatment, right? But it's not a cause. So if you look at primitive populations, my favorite is, example is this group in the South Pacific called the Tucacenta. They eat mostly sweet potatoes. 94% of their calories come from sweet potatoes if you're wow. a Tucacenta man. Wow. And the rest is from whatever else they have in their diet and some amount of pork, right? Not a diet I would recommend to anybody else. And then, by the way, they're sweet potatoes. So about 7% of that is sucrose, right? They don't get diabetes. So my question to everybody who says sugar causes diabetes or carbohydrates cause diabetes. If 94% of your diet as carbohydrates doesn't do the trick, what will? Mm. Yeah, right? that's a really good point. And we, 
And we can look at populations like the Chinese or the Japanese who 50, you know, 50 odd years or more ago had very low rates of diabetes and their carb consumption has gone down in the intervening times. And, you know, and particularly in the case of Japan, they've gone from like 84% of their diet is carbohydrates down to about 55%, 55 to 65% now. And their type two diabetes rate has gone up tenfold. So wow. Yeah, no, that's right. really well explained. Um, I do want to also talk about the sun thing because that I find endlessly fascinating. And I notice it over and over and over, not right. only with myself, but anybody that we are working with. Last year, um, a golf magazine was hiring me to write uh, you know, quarterly articles in their magazine. And so it was springtime and I'm like, great, let's let's talk about sunlight and let's let's just let's give people a guide about smart sun exposure, which is to say, like, you know, start early early in the day, don't expose yourself during the, you know, high sun. If you're just getting started, like, um, you know, use shade, do you use any other thing besides sunscreen? If you feel like you're going to get a burn. We also talked about diet and how that interaction changes things. And the golf magazine rejected it. They wouldn't print it. Um, I, I didn't think I said anything too egregious in there. I, yeah, it sucks. Um, but it's something that keeps coming up. How are vegetables affecting people's ability to stay out in the sun? Okay. Well, let's, you know, We evolved on this planet. This may come as news to some, <laughs> but I'm a firm believer that we have in the science that humans evolved on this planet and part of our, part of the environment that we involved, that we evolved to deal with was the fact that we have this thing called the sun up in the air, which puts out a lot of UV rays, right? <laughs> this, this may be troubling for some to accept, but <laughs> They, uh, the U.S. military went and looked at this population in the Andes in this high desert. So basically no trees. These people are out in the sun all day long. They eat a crappy diet, high carb diet, by the way, but pretty traditional fats. And what they found is they didn't get, you know, the harmful sorts of skin cancer, which is kind of what you would expect that if we live in this diet, in this environment, we should be adapted to it. Right. So. Let's say that you've, you're a scientist in a lab and you want to figure out how to give an animal sunburn and skin cancer. What do you do? Well, you give them more omega-6 fats, right? Which, as we've discussed, are very fragile. And one of the things that will cause them to break down into toxins is ultraviolet radiation, right? So the way I've heard this described is it's like a rheostat. It, the more you give them omega-6 fats, the more cancer, skin cancer they get from ultraviolet rays. They've done experiments in humans where they are trying to figure out, you know, what in this skin breaks down in um, under ultraviolet light into the things that cause inflammation. I mean, because, you know, sunburn is an inflammatory response. It's a response to damage, Right. And what they found is that the omega-6 fats that are in your skin break down into HNE, among others, my favorite toxin, and that causes this inflammatory response, right? HNE alone causes an inflammatory response because it modifies proteins, as we discussed before, making them PAMPs or DAMPs, right? Making them something that looks to the body like you have an infection, right? So it causes essentially an autoimmune reaction against your skin, right? So what should a normal, now 
what should a normal reaction to the sun look like? You go out, you get pink, right? You get a little bit of inflammation because you do have fats in your cells, in your skin cells, which are mostly saturated. Um, and I can't remember the, remember the name of it right now, but that causes a mild little inflammatory reaction. And the next day you get up and you're tan, right? So this has been my experience. experience. I mean, anybody who looks at me, I'm blonde, fair-skinned, blue-eyed, and I live in Idaho now in the high desert. And I don't burn. If I go out long enough, and we're talking eight or nine hours, I will get red. And typically the next day, I'm brown. Wow. Right? Yeah. This didn't used to be the case. I used to roast in 45 minutes. And we're talking sheets of skin coming off over the next couple of weeks. It was horrible. And one of the first things that happened when I dropped seed oils out of my diet was that I became resistant to sunburn. And the real notable time, the real notable, call it experiment, was my ex-wife and I were standing in the sun in Central Park for two and a half hours in April. You know, the trees, the leaves hadn't come out, um, doing a barefoot running class, as a matter of fact. And she had dark skin um, and, you know, I don't, and she burned and I didn't Wow! standing side by side, first big sun exposure of the year. Wow. That was what made her decide to change her diet. And shortly after that, we went down to Disney world and we're out in the sun for four days, didn't use any sunscreen, didn't get any burn, you know, and that I'd moved to Texas. I would go for runs for three or four hours in the middle of the day in the sun, no sunscreen. I've used sunscreen once in the last 14 years. And that was when I was at 13,000 feet in the French Alps skiing. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to be an idiot about this. <laughs> this is, you know, wow. the double whammy of sunburn because you're getting it from the sun and then reflected off the snow. Yeah, right. Uh, and even then, you know, I got red, I didn't burn. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think for most people, um, they, they wouldn't even consider being out in the sun without lathering themselves with tons and tons of sunscreen. And that's been our experience as well. I used to burn like crazy all the time. And we took a trip. It was this time of year. So it was late May last year to Mexico and it was full sun. The UV index went up to like 13, which I didn't even know was like possible. Um, and, and yeah, like midday sun, we might use a little bit of shade, but we never burn. We didn't use one single drop of sunscreen. And that's been across the board one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen as far as your skin's ability to be able to act, interact with, with the sun and yeah, how that relates to diet, I think yeah. is so critical. Yeah. And as I, you know, as we were discussing the mechanisms on this, you're causing a helpful, appropriate level of inflammation and you're not overwhelming your body with the production, with the UV induced production of these toxins that, you know, they kill skin cells and they cause this, extraordinary inflammatory reaction and this breakdown, you know, and this is, this is the, probably the most important thing to understand is that this is the common mechanism of all these chronic diseases, whether you're talking, you know, sunburn, um, type two diabetes, um, Alzheimer's heart disease, uh, arthritis, all of them have this process of omega-6 fats breaking down into toxins, causing an inflammatory reaction in all of these chronic diseases, even in obesity, you see this. 
you see infiltration by macrophages into these cells where the omega-6 fats are breaking down into these toxins because it's a sign of infection, right? It's a, it's a, and, and cellular damage and your body is trying to repair it and body can, you know, I mean, your body can certainly repair it. I mean, my experience was it took years before it took a total of seven years before I stopped seeing things getting better. Right. I mean, my liver enzymes took four years to normalize. Um, and there were lots of other things that got better over time. Some of them are really quick. You know, my visual acuity got better right away. And I've heard other people say the same thing. The sunburn thing took weeks. Um, my irritable bowel disease took two days. That was bloody awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, but it's this common mechanism that you see in all of these different conditions that starts with a higher than evolutionarily expected intake of omega-6 fats. Wow. Yep. So somebody listening to this maybe is wanting to get some of these vegetable oils out of their diet. Practically speaking, what can they do? I mean, I, I know it's a little bit more obvious if you've been into this for a little while, but what, where should people be um, looking and, and really trying to go to, to change their lifestyle, to be able to improve this in their lives that they don't know where, you know, obviously it's easy to throw away a bottle of vegetable oil if you have one in your kitchen, but where are other places that people need to be aware of and, and what can they do practically to start getting them out? Well, I mean, it's almost, you know, everybody hears that processed foods are bad. Almost the definition of a processed food is that it contains seed oils. So, and it's probably why processed foods are harmful is because they contain seed oils. So where are you going to run into processed foods in the middle of the supermarket, right? You know, the boxes and cans and the stuff that sits on the shelf for forever is almost always contains some amount of seed oils in it. Um, restaurants are a real problem because seed oils became part of our diet because they are cheaper than animal fats and restaurants are all about at the end of the day, a profit making enterprise, not to ding them. Right. Um, but they use the cheapest fats they can get and that's vegetable oils. Food manufacturers do the same thing. Right. And also, you know, they can't call their foods healthy if, unless they're using vegetable oils in them effectively. So they're required by the government to include these fats. Um, Unfortunately, things like chicken and pork, which are fed a lot of seed oils and grains, concentrate these fats. The biggest, surprisingly, the biggest source of um, linoleic acid in the American diet is chicken and chicken products. And that's partly because of things like fried chicken, where you're frying a chicken in seed oils. But it's also because the chicken itself, because it's fed so much corn and soy, contains really high levels of seed oils. And People vary a lot in their reaction to that, but some people have a pretty strong, some people have seen pretty remarkable health effects from producing chicken and pork in their diet. And that's not to say that if you're getting pastured chicken or pastured pork, that you should eliminate that. It really does depend on what the animals fed. Um, There are, you know, uh, I mentioned my co-host, Brian Curley. He has, um, some shopping guides that he and his wife have put together that they are trying to, that they're made available so that people can go into supermarkets and not have to spend hours reading all the labels, which is what I've been doing for years. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, you know, we're getting to the point where there are some shortcuts and um, hopefully we will start putting, you know, as this becomes more and more recognized, uh, restaurants will start recognizing that this is something that people want. I mean, you know, to give credit where it's due, you know, I, I'm severely gluten intolerant. And when I figured that out 12 years ago, it was really hard to eat gluten-free. Now it's a piece of cake, generally. You know, you go into restaurants and they know exactly what's going on. Most packaging has accurate listings of what they they contain. Um, and I'd like to see, they will respond to consumer demand and we just need to create the demand and we create the demand through our shopping choices and they will respond to it. Yeah, I, I mean, that. they've, you know, in my work with Zero Acre, they've, already started talking to big food manufacturers and you know some of them have already i mean mcdonald's for instance has been reducing the linoleic acid content of their foods for years um in part because of (laughs) crazy production problems you know i mentioned the you know linseed oil causing rags to burst into flames and cottonseed oil cottonseed piles bursting into flames. Well, it turns out that if you run a McDonald's restaurant and you have guys work in the fryer and <laughs> their foods get, their clothes get saturated with oil and then you throw it in the back of a laundry truck, the laundry truck sometimes bursts into flames. Crazy. That's <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. So wow. they've, you know, McDonald's years ago went, started going towards low linoleic seed oils just because it's a better fat to use in a fryer. Um, So, you know, there's what I don't think these companies have realized is that the same lack of oxidative damage that makes it an economic problem also makes it a health problem. And as that becomes better understood, you know, I think we'll see them responding pretty quick because a lot of industry has been trying to make that change for years just for economic and production. You know, for instance, M&M Mars, Mars or M&M's switched peanut M&M's to low linoleic peanuts like in 2017. And one of the reasons they did it is because the shelf life is 10 times as long. Oh, Why wow. is the shelf life longer? Because the omega-6 fats go rancid. Wow. <laughs> right? And the rancid fats are the toxic fats. So they kind of backed into making healthier M&M's, even though they don't, you know, they didn't really recognize what they were doing at the time. Right. So interesting. Wow. (laughs) I don't tend to eat a lot of M&Ms, so I guess I wasn't aware of that, but uh, that's really good to know. Well, you can put them back on the menu. (laughs) Nice. That's great. (laughs) Peanut M&Ms anyway. I mean... (laughs) Uh, that's awesome. Well, we were talking offline and besides sharing, um, you know, love for formula one racing. We also talked a little bit about some of the other lifestyle things, um, that you like to incorporate in your life and some of the things that can help make people healthier. So just besides diet, what other things have you been exploring and and keeping in your life? Um, you know, we talked about all the different outdoor activities that you do, but, but for somebody who wanted to be healthier, what are some really obvious things that you would like to tell them to watch out for as well? Well, I think the single Okay. So I I mentioned I got into this, or I should have mentioned that I got into this through barefoot running. When I had my health issues, I had what's known as acute diverticulitis, which is, you know, led to a perforated colon. The only thing I found in my research that reduced the incidence of that was running. So I started running and it was pretty miserable. And then I figured out that it was miserable because of the shoes I was wearing. And if you, if I went with barefoot style shoes, I didn't get shin splints. Um, 
and I suddenly became a runner. So you don't have to run, but yeah, what you do have to do is some sort of activity that leads to aerobic fitness, right? And this can be as simple as, I mean, if you're overweight, I'm going, the first thing I'm going to tell you is not to run because you will get injured, right? But you do need to start walking and walking's fabulous. And I mean, there's a woman on uh, Twitter whose Twitter handle is seizure salad. Um, I think her name's Jennifer Barker. I can't remember, but um, she was very overweight and she lost all of her weight by walking up to like 40 miles at a time. Right. And fixing her diet. She went on a keto diet to control her epilepsy, which worked fabulously well. Um, you don't have to walk 40 miles, but you ought to be getting out and walking as much as you can. Um, I agree more. And you know, what a lot of people find is when they fix their diet and they start walking, they get a lot more energy and they wind up wanting to go out and do things. And, you know, if you get into running, that's awesome. Running is the single best thing you can do for your health. It extends your lifespan more than anything else that's known to science or medicine. It reduces your risk of dying from every disease by half, right? Again, better than everything else we know. So, you know, I run regularly. Um, it makes me feel great because I know not to wear the kind of shoes that made my joints hurt. It doesn't bother me. My, you know, I used to think I had a bad knee. My knee has gotten so much better now that it's, it's like crazy. Um, I mean, it used to, you know, I'd like to ski my knee when I would ski would hurt for three or four days. Now I barely even notice it because of all the running that I do. Um, and it makes everything else easy. You know, I like to hike, I like to go backpacking and all of that becomes easy when you're regularly active. And what's the mechanism by which running and aerobic activity makes you healthier? It increases your body's ability to deal with oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is the process by which seed oils convert into toxins, right? So you become more resistant to those toxins and better able to deal with them through regular aerobic exercise. Now I will say, um, you know, uh, resistance exercise, weightlifting and all that doesn't have the same benefit, but it has lots of other benefits. So you really need to do both. This isn't an either or thing, but I really stress that you need to be doing aerobic fitness, um, of some sort. You don't have to run marathons, you know, you don't have to run at all, but you know, getting out and walking and being active or riding a bike or whatever you want to do should be like the absolute first initial step. Yeah. And as you have, if you're unhealthy and you fix your diet, your weight will start to come down and your energy will go up as your mitochondria start to repair themselves and get better able to produce energy. And you will find all of this stuff a lot easier. Yeah, totally. Couldn't and agree. a lot more fun. And a lot more fun. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Since the pandemic, um, we I, I just checked this the other day on my phone. Um, I typically average about 10 miles walking a day. Um, and I would argue that that the walking has a linear benefit as long as you're, there's no injuries or whatever. I, I think the more you do it, the more it helps. I don't see like where you can walk well, too much almost. You know what I mean? They, well, they've, they've actually looked into that, you know, because you would think, and I'm, sh look, I'm sure that there's a level of running that is too much. <laughs> they don't know what it is. The benefit keeps going up. So if you look at ultra runners, people who run, you know, longer than a marathon, and some of these people do it all the time, 
the health benefit keeps going up. Wow. There's no upper limit to this health benefit. Wow. So, you know, and what's interesting is the more, the longer you do it, the better it gets for you because I mean, running, this kind of sounds funny to say running is a skills based sport. You know, you do learn not to trip, <laughs> <laughs> which is the general downside to running is you trip and hurt yourself. And I say this, having broken a rib last year when I tripped and <laughs> fell on my watch. Oh man. Crack. <laughs> but that doesn't happen much anymore. But you know, I mean, um, you know, even, even doing that, there's a benefit, you know, you learn the skill, you learn to look down and not to check your watch when you're in, the middle of <laughs> in a rocky area, which is wow. what I did. That's great. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, and it, you know, I mean, I like to tell people, it's so easy to talk yourself out of doing a run or going for a walk. I have literally, including the runs where I've broken, broken a bone doing something like that. I have never had a bad run. Never right? regretted no it matter later. How, yeah, no, you always, assuming you're, you're wearing the right shoes, you always feel better at the end of the run. And it doesn't matter how crappy you feel at the beginning of the run. Yep. The only exception is if you're sick. Yeah. Right. That's the only real time where you like, I'm a big fan of heart rate training. I've literally had runs where, you know, I went out and my heart rate was just going crazy and I was like, okay, I can't run today. And it turned out that my heart rate was high because I was coming down with an illness Sick or something. and there wasn't any symptom other than a high heart rate, yeah. you know? So it's uh heart rate training is something I'm a big fan of. The benefit of heart rate training is that you're training your body specifically to burn fat for fuel, which has its own benefits. It makes you you know, super resistant to getting tired. I mean, you know, I, my wife and I did a hike, um, two summers ago, you know, I got her into all this stuff and we went out and did a hike and we got up in the morning and I was like, I'm not really hungry. Are you? She's like, no, I'm not really hungry. And we went out and we walked, you know, 14 miles with backpacks before we got hungry enough to decide that we wanted to stop and have some food. That's amazing. Right. It's, a, it's an amazing, it's amazing to have that capability, even yeah. if you don't need it, yep. like just being in an airport and the food's all crap and you're like, eh, eh. I don't need to eat. Yeah, exactly. No, it's so frustrating when I go on my annual backpacking trip and that's a 10 mile hike in with a big heavy pack and everybody has to stop every two miles to get their snacks and get everything <sighs> out of their pack. And you're just like, guys, like have some salt, drink a bit of water. Let's go. Let's get up to the site and enjoy, you know, being up there. Um, and you're talking to a guy, yeah, by the way, snacks is another thing that, you know, goes by the wayside. I laugh when I watch backpacking videos and they're like, Oh, well you got hip pockets for your snacks. And it's like, <laughs> come on, what's a snack? <laughs> <laughs> come on. Absolutely not needed. Um, and yeah, like I said, uh, you're talking to a guy who, uh, when I was 18 years old was given a TV VCR combo to take to college with me that, that will date me just just a little bit. And then, and I pissed my parents off because I returned it to buy a polar M two twenty heart rate monitor. <laughs> oh, wow. You are a real fitness nerd. Old school. Uh, yeah, I exactly. To, I have to bow in admiration. That's impressive. <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, we love heart rate trading. It's something I've been into for a very long time. Um, on my walk this morning, I was wearing my earth runner sandals, which is like a six millimeter kind of Vibram sole with a few little straps. And, um, apparently the, one of my neighbors, somebody I hadn't met before kind of was on the same path. And he started talking about, um, he pointed at my shoes. He's like, I don't know how you can walk in those things. It, it looks like that would be really painful. And I'm like, no, this is actually, the, these are the most amazing shoes I've ever worn. And he's in, uh, Hoka's. Is that the, the brand? Like the absolute yeah. 
worst, the ultimate marshmallow shoe, worst, worst, worst shoe you can possibly buy. And he was talking about how he's got bunions and hammer toe and his knees hurt. And he's going to hike later, but he's really bummed because his knee's going to hurt. And how, how could, you know, wearing less on his feet actually improve, you know, his, his walking condition. And luckily I had a few minutes. I got to talk to him. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about why barefoot, you know, walking, running, anything is so beneficial? Well, it's so exasperating. I mean, if you've ever broken a bone, like your arm or your leg or something, and they stick you in a cast, what's the first thing that happens? Your, mus- your muscles atrophy. It's frankly mind-boggling how fast your muscles atrophy, right? I mean, literally, if they stick you in bed for two weeks, you can't live a normal life because your muscles have atrophied so fast. So, and in any area of fitness or medicine, what do they tell you? Work your muscles. You need muscle strength, right? You got arthritis. They're now saying you should run because it'll make your muscles stronger and that's good for your arthritis. Then we come to your feet, right? If you wear a regular sneaker, only four of the, I think it's 56 muscles in your feet actually get a workout, right? So you are causing the muscles in your feet to atrophy. And I will tell you, when I first got, I got a pair. So the book Born to Run, which really opened my eyes to this, came out in 2009. I had bought a pair of Vibram Five Fingers, these little toe glove things, um, three years before that. Wow. And I was a hiker. I had done, you know, I could, I would do 10, 12 mile hikes in my hiking boots. My first job was actually selling hiking boots when I was in high school. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, I was a Boy Scout. I've done three, st- three states worth of the Appalachian Trail, you know, so I was a pretty serious hiker. So I got these things and I went for a mile walk and my feet were in agony. <laughs> Why? because the muscles in my feet were so weak, I couldn't hold my body weight up for a mile, a mile, right? I had to sit down, it hurt so much. And it took time, not as much time as you would think. It took probably six weeks from when I really decided several years later to get into the whole barefoot thing. It took six weeks from me doing it hundred percent to climbing the highest mountain in the state of Maine, Mount Katahdin, which is really tough mountain to do very rocky. And one that I've done numerous times, you know, my family's from Maine and I came down and I was like, my feet feel better at the end of this than they did at the beginning. This is unbelievable. I wasn't able to make the whole hike. I did about eight miles and then my feet were so exhausted. I had to put some sneakers on that I brought along as a fallback. And once I put the feet, the sneakers on, because all of a sudden I didn't need all those tired muscles in my feet, I was able to run. But what that told me was I wasn't using all those muscles in my feet. Now, since then I went to, I went out to Colorado and in these toe shoes, I went to climb Pike's Peak and I got lost because I'm an idiot. <laughs> and my 14-mile hike turned into a 20-mile hike oh, up no. and down the mountain. It's a big and difference. And then the next, morning, the next morning, I got up and I ran a 5K. And I did a great time in the 5K because now I have strong feet. And what's interesting is when you strengthen your – I mean, I've redefined core, right? 
as a result of this experience, I have redefined core. Your core is not your torso. Your core is your torso and your legs and your feet. And when you fix your shoes, the first thing that strengthens is your feet. And then it goes all the way up the kinetic chain until finally the last thing that you feel it in is your arms, right? And it literally, you know, I've talked to so many people about this who they're like, oh, my feet hurt. And then they, they're like, oh, wow, my feet feel so much better now. And then they're like, now my calves hurt, you know, and then my, now my knees hurt, you know, and it literally goes right up the body until it gets to your back and your lower back pain typically goes away because those muscles strengthen up because you're using your core, right, from your torso to the ground uh, correctly, right, the way we evolved to use it. Yep. And downsides, it's hard to find shoes. That's the downside. Yep. And people give you weird looks. I mean, <laughs> the last time I went up Malkatodden in Maine, I was wearing these Luna sandals and which are like, you know, a little thin piece of Vibram rubber with a little leather top sole on it. And then a couple of straps to hold it onto your foot. And I'm going up the North end of the Appalachian trail. And I remember this one guy, there were two guys who were great. This one guy looks at me, and goes, he goes, why are you wearing those things? And I looked at him in his hiking boots and I said, why are you wearing those things? I'm passing you. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and the other guy, and he was like, yeah, that's a really good point. And then the other guy was like, his wife was like, why, why aren't you wearing hiking boots? And I was like, why should I? And her husband goes, yeah. If I can wear those, why the hell am I wearing these things? <laughs> That's amazing. And I waved to them and, you know, I beat them to the top and then beat them back down. That's um, amazing. Because that's the other thing is they don't weigh anything, right? And just mechanically taking weight, off, taking weight off your feet makes hiking and running easier and it makes you faster. Yep. Um, the other amazing benefit. So, okay, this is, you know, so we've established that I had weak feet and weak ankles, right? And I was still running. So on rocky trails in Connecticut, where the only type of trail we have is a rocky trail. And I would sprain my ankles like every quarter, right? Pretty good sprain. It was a pain in the butt. Ankle rolls were a regular part of my life. And they had been for my whole life, you know? I haven't sprained my ankle in 12 years. I have had foot bridges flip out from under me. I have had round rocks roll away from underneath me. And your body just reacts when you can feel the ground and when your legs and your feet are so much stronger. You know, sprained ankles just doesn't happen anymore, yeah. right? That's probably the single biggest benefit, right? Don't get as many blisters. You don't get blisters from your shoes most of the time. You know, you do get get them occasionally, but I get way fewer injuries doing barefoot style running than I did wearing shoes. Yep. Um, you know, and literally the only downside is a bit of inconvenience. Still, still trying to figure out a decent pair of winter boots to wear because, you know, as a result of this, my feet have changed shape to the dramatically they're much you know they're muscular now so they're bigger and wider and they spread yeah they've, toes they've spread my bent bent big toe has straightened out that was one of the first thing that happens my um sister-in-law you know she was like i've got bunion this was such a funny conversation she's like i've got bunions and lower back pain i was like you need new shoes she's like what 
And she actually listened to me, God bless her. She was online on deck for bunion surgery. And she went out and bought a pair of Vivo Barefoots because she worked standing up all day. And she calls me up one day and she's like, my bunions are going away and I no longer have any lower back pain. And I was like, yep, yep. that's yep. what happens. That's right. That's what happens. That's right. Well, that was all super validating. I actually used that exact same analogy when I talked to this guy today about the cast and the atrophying muscles. And yeah, it, it is such a game changer to treat your feet the way they should be treated, almost like your hands. Like what would happen if you wore gloves all the time? Like they, you would lose dexterity. Or mittens even worse, where you even couldn't worse. even use Good your point. fingers. Yeah, great Because I mean, that's, that's one of the things you realize if you're wearing shoes with a thin sole, you actually use your toes yep. to hold on to the ground as you're yep. running, totally. right? You engage your toes, you like wrap them around rocks and stuff. Yep. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, I have to say the, probably the, one of the best periods of my life. And I actually, the only, the initial period of going barefoot and minimalist shoes was just unbelievable. Cause it, I was using a part of my body that I'd never used before. And it was like, almost, it was sensual, just this experience of walking around and feeling the earth, yep. feeling the earth through nerves that have been dead my whole life. Yep. And kind of the only thing I regret about really getting into it is that I, it doesn't feel that way. You know, the novelty wore off, yep. but that was just an amazing period. That's so awesome. Just, yeah. And the, you know, it, it was phenomenal. That's awesome. Absolutely phenomenal. I think about like when you talked about the rocky terrain, like that to me now is like foot massage time. Like, oh, we're going to feel all those different undulations. And it's, yeah, it's, it's such a game changer. My biggest resistance was throwing away all the hundreds and hundreds of dollars of shoes that I already had, but so, so, so worth it. I, my only regret is not doing it way, way sooner. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that thoughtful explanation of, of barefoot and couldn't agree more. It's, it, it is just such a game changer. We know you, uh, you've got a camping trip this weekend, so we should probably let you go out and pack, uh, before you take off. Do you mind? Yeah, letting... It's, it's Memorial day. I'm going to Stanley, Idaho and the forecast is snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking like it's not going to be the best Memorial day for weather around here in the Western United States this weekend. <laughs> It's pretty, yeah, it's, I, here, I live in Boise, it's supposed to rain, but up in Stanley, which is supposed to be the coldest place in Idaho, it's supposed to snow, so that's kind of funny. I'll Yikes. be in my tent watching the snowflakes come down. Yikes. <laughs> well, I know you will enjoy it anyway. Uh, you're taking your family along as well? My my wife and my dog. Yeah, uh, My great. daughters are grown. Yeah, that's so, great. So, yeah, we, we like to do these adventures. I mean, she has, you know, just a quick, a quick story. She, um... When we got, we knew each other, we went to high school together and then we got back together a few years ago and she had foot problems and, you know, was overweight. She was an organic farmer, grew all her own food, um, near vegan, was overweight and very unhealthy. And, you know, she lost 56 pounds in two and a half months. Wow doing this, you know, and she had, she thought I was, she probably thought I was more nuts about the shoe thing. And we did a 10 mile hike in the shoes and I was wearing my, you know, sandals and she was wearing her big boots and was in agony. And that was when she was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. If you can do it in these things and you're feel great at the end, the next hike, the next big hike that we did was 15 miles up and down the highest mountain in New York state. And she was, you know, 56 pounds lighter and had new shoes and new feet and 
she just couldn't believe the change. New person. I mean, totally new person. Totally new person. And what I discovered after is that she had been suffering from, you know, for 30 years, fibromyalgia, chronic debilitating autoimmune disease that's almost entirely in remission now. If she eats seed oils, it comes back pretty quickly. Wow. But she was like, you know, I mean, everything fixed for her. She went off all of her medications and, you know, it's hard to fathom. And she's a nurse. And when she talked to me, when we started having these conversations, she couldn't believe I wasn't on any medications and that I had no need for any medications ever. I don't even take OTC medications. I don't need anti-pain medications. I don't need any of this stuff. And she was like, so freaked out about going off her meds. And now she's just like, you know, she loves it. That's why amazing. would anybody want to be taking all this crap all the time? I mean, heck, it's expensive if nothing yeah. else. If nothing else. Yeah, that's right. It still blows me away how quickly the body can self-regulate, how quickly the body can just drop fat. I get it all the time. I'd lost 3.4 pounds of fat like this week and my itchiness went away and I can get a nice tan and all these crazy things that people think they have to deal with because it's just average because of our stupid ass lifestyles can just go away and the body just kind of fix itself and it needs so little yeah. of those external things you're talking about the medications the supplements the you know the workout programs the expensive shoes like all this shit like you don't you don't need it your body will take care of itself and it's it's really amazing yeah. to see yeah well that's awesome yeah. well if you don't mind tell us where people can go to find you to connect with you and connect with your work i've uh my blog is yelling dash stop at uh yelling dash stop.blogspot.com. I'm on Twitter where I'm pretty active at Tucker Goodrich. Uh, look up Tucker Goodrich on YouTube. Um, that's where I've been posting the, the blog video or the podcast videos, which are also of course on my blog. Um, and I'm, you know, I try to respond to people if they're on Twitter, I can't respond to everything, but I love having, I really love having conversations with people about, health issues like this, especially people's end of one experiences, because I think that's what, since we've kind of already established that we're going to have to fix this ourselves, hearing those stories, and most importantly, other people hearing those stories is just incredibly helpful. So, you know, if folks should, folks should not be shy to share their stories. And if, you know, you're having issues, you know, it, not everything is going to fix easy. Some stuff takes time and it can be really frustrating and you shouldn't get frustrated by it, right? I mean, my feet, for instance, my feet changed shape for years. <laughs> and it was just, it was expensive actually because I ski and I had to keep having my ski boots altered yep. <laughs> because my feet were a different shape. Yep, totally. You know, so, you know, it takes time and you didn't, we didn't do this to ourselves overnight. It's not going to fix overnight. Yeah. But once you get on the same path and you start seeing progress, it definitely makes it easy to stick it out. Yeah, totally agree. Well, that's so generous of you to be able to have those conversations with people and, and hear people's success. But thank you so very much for all of your work. And thank you for appearing on our show today. It's always an honor to talk with you. Thanks, Casey. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.